Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Maurice Shema, the author of Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. Maurice, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So could you first tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I'm a journalist. I have a full-time job at The Marshall Project, which is a small nonprofit that covers the criminal justice system. I've been doing journalism around criminal justice in general and the death penalty in particular for about 10 years. And I came to the subject actually even before I was in journalism. I worked for a small nonprofit that had been founded by a capital defense lawyer in Austin, Texas, which is uh, where I'm from, where I live now. And that lawyer had founded this organization called the Texas After Violence Project, which was an oral history organization. We would do these interviews around the state with people who were touched in some way by the death penalty, lawyers, family members of people who had been executed, family members of murder victims. And I just became sort of fascinated with the subject. And as I got into a journalism career, I just continually kept returning to it, expanding out, finding different angles, and realized at a certain point that I understood this wider arc of the death penalty's rise and fall and could kind of tell that story in one book. I have to say, there were definitely points in time reading the book where I really identified with that. I went to journalism grad school at Northwestern, Hmm. and it was in the early 2000s, which was around the time that the state of Illinois was dealing with its own death penalty. And you do mention that a little bit, but uh, this made me much more familiar with what Texas was doing. And it was fascinating, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit about why you focused on Texas specifically for this book. Sure. Well, Texas has been the epicenter of the death penalty. In the 1970s, the Supreme Court struck down death penalty laws around the country and states that wanted to keep the punishment rewrote their laws. Texas wrote its law in a very particular way that allowed the state to sentence lots of people to death. It pioneered, you know, the use of lethal injection and at this point, there have been you know more than 1,500 executions in the United States since the 1970s, and Texas has been responsible for more than 500 of them. But in addition to the you know political and legal story, there's also a cultural story. There's a sense in which Texas identifies with the death penalty very strongly. You know, politically, our governors have made it a campaign issue when they run for office, both for governor and then in the case of George W. Bush and Rick Perry, when they run for president, it always comes up in the debates. And the Texas death penalty just has this kind of exotic role for a lot of Americans as the pinnacle of a punitive approach to criminal justice. So I thought that focusing the book there would allow for readers, even who don't live in Texas, have never spent much time thinking about Texas, to understand how this punishment came to dominate American politics and law to such a degree over the last you know, generation. If you'd had to come up with an alternate title to Let the Lord Sort Them, I feel like a solid one would have been Death is Different. It's a phrase that appears in the book and really came to mind again and again as a reader reading the book, the way that we have managed to incorporate the death penalty again into our criminal legal system also creates this different world, really, with the death penalty. Could you talk a little bit about what you learned as you were researching the book and meeting people who are involved with capital punishment and dealing with cases that involve capital punishment about the ways in which it is different from a lot of the other criminal justice cases you've worked on in the Marshall Project? 
Sure, absolutely. So the phrase death is different um, really comes to the fore in legal circles in the 1970s when there's a series of Supreme Court cases in which the NAACP LDF, the Legal Defense Fund, you know, this organization of civil rights lawyers is arguing to keep the death penalty out of the legal system. And at various points in the oral argument, the lawyer arguing for the LDF, Anthony Amsterdam, uses the statement. He says, death is different. And I actually have the quote here. He says, If you don't accept the view that for constitutional purposes, death is different, we lose this case. Death is factually different. Death is final. Death is irremediable. It goes beyond this world. It is a legislative decision to do something, and we know not what we do. And that is a reference to, you know, Jesus' statement on the cross. And the Supreme Court brings the death penalty back. These civil rights lawyers lose, ultimately. But in bringing it back, they also create a basically separate body of jurisprudence of law around the death penalty that gets increasingly complicated to the point where lawyers really have to specialize in it. A prosecutor might work their way up in an office from misdemeanors to felonies and might eventually try death penalty cases and then can go back to doing all sorts of, you know, complex white collar cases, etc. But on the defense side, what you see is the development of a network of lawyers around the country who specialize in just doing capital defense and even more specifically in habeas law, which is the later stage of appeals where you attack the the death sentence and the conviction in a broad way. You reinvestigate the entirety of the case and these lawyers really make their careers doing that. What you see is a world of defense lawyers who specialize in capital appeals, who represent men on death row, and who get very used to these 11th hour fights with the state over executions where, you know, there's a week to go before someone's going to be executed and they're filing all these motions, they're filing petitions to the courts to try to stop the execution. And it's really unlike other kinds of law and even unlike other kinds of defense lawyering. One thing I saw over and over again throughout the research, and I don't think I would have realized this if I hadn't spent so long looking at different cases, is the way that the death penalty being different kind of poisons the relationships between lawyers. One anecdote that I don't think made it into the book that I found so fascinating was that in the 1970s, you had, you know, a series of cases at the Supreme Court where civil rights lawyers who were representing men on death row were fighting with, you know, attorneys general for the state's And these lawyers would actually hang out with each other. They would get dinner. They would get a drink. There was a a general level of friendliness between them. I I interviewed one former attorney general, uh, former assistant attorney general, and she said, oh, say hi to that civil rights lawyer for me. I haven't talked to him in years. But fast forward to the 90s, to the early 2000s, when executions are really happening and people's lives really feel like they're on the line. You know, in the 1970s, the death penalty was still kind of an abstraction. There weren't a lot of executions yet. But once executions are are happening and and it's a life and death issue, the lawyers really come to hate each other. I mean, they're accusing each other at the Bar Association of malfeasance. They're attacking each other in the press. They're accusing each other of having a bloodlust. You know, one investigator for a defense firm told me that he almost got into a fistfight with a prosecutor at a bar in Austin. And I, I believed that story because I just heard so much enmity between these two sides. And... I realize that lawyers on opposite sides of a case can can get mad at each other, but in the death penalty context, it did feel different. It felt like there was a special level of just toxic 
disdain for one another because there was this perception, you know, by prosecutors that these defense lawyers were skirting the rules to get these, you know, murderers to, to escape, you know, their, their just punishment. And the caricature on the other side is defense lawyers saying that these prosecutors are bloodthirsty and just want to murder their clients, you know, who are traumatized and mentally ill, etc. So you just see a level of discord that, that I have never encountered elsewhere, even in the, the rest of the legal system. That's fascinating. Another thing that struck me when I was reading the book, in the beginning, you talk about how when America was founded, the United States were founded, the early parts of the 19th century and even the beginning of the 20th century, we were not necessarily the leaders around the world when it came to actually imposing the death penalty. Now, I I do want to add the caveat that I mean through official legal channels. I don't mean extrajudicial lynchings, which we'll also get to. And that when the death penalty was removed as a potential punishment, there were many people who just thought, well, this, this makes sense. We've been using it less and less. Why would we even keep it around? How did we get from that point to having the death penalty reinstated and then starting to execute people with a real fervor. So in the 1960s, as you say, the death penalty nearly disappeared in the U.S. I was shocked when I found these old clippings where district attorney candidates in Houston were saying, you know, the death penalty is kind of useless. We don't really need it as a society. And these were prosecutors, you know, who 30 years later would be some of the biggest supporters of the death penalty. In the 1960s, as executions slowed down, there were public polling done, and the number of Americans who supported the death penalty was was ticking down. It was well under 50% in those years. But in 1972, the Supreme Court strikes down the death penalty, and in doing it in this big, dramatic way, it causes a backlash. It it allows the death penalty to be seen, especially in the South, as a kind of states' rights issue. This is coming after an era of the Civil Rights Movement, the Voting Rights Act. There's a lot of antagonism to these kind of Washington decisions that are getting made by Congress and the Supreme Court in Southern states. One version of that is you know, criminal procedure law. I talk in the book about the movie Dirty Harry, where you know, Clint Eastwood is this this hard charging detective who is stymied at every turn because his bosses say, "Well, the Supreme Court, you know, says that you need to get you know a warrant for that arrest, or you need to interrogate that that um, suspect properly." And he didn't, so he gets to go free, and and this allows a, a man to go on and kill more people. And, and Dirty Harry's righteous indignation is something you know viewers are supposed to identify with. That movie came out around the same time as that Supreme Court decision, and the backlash to the Supreme Court's decision about the death penalty spurs state legislatures to say, well, now that we're being deprived of the death penalty, we realize how much we actually value it and want it, and uh, our voters want it. And in Texas, many legislators told me that they felt a real burden, like if they didn't bring the death penalty back through a new law, that they were going to get voted out the next time. The pressure was on. So... It's really the backlash that produces the sort of contemporary death penalty system that we have in which, you know, death sentences start to tick up throughout the 80s and 90s, and we get to the kind of heyday of the death penalty. And we've discussed the rise, but there's a reason why, you know, you structured the book into the rise and fall of the death penalty. So let's get to the fall part. Uh, We've talked about how, you know, the death penalty was brought back. People were being sentenced to to death, 
executions were being carried out regularly. What started to interfere with that or what started a backlash to that, I guess, to that backlash? You know, when I called the book The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty, it didn't seem like a particularly controversial or, or surprising title to me because it seemed so obvious that, that the number of death sentences and executions were, dis- were disappearing. The book came out right after the Trump administration pushed through 13 executions, and so it did not seem like the death penalty was falling, really, if if you were just coming into it. But I sort of now I'm continually making the point that no, the n- number of new death sentences and executions every year is still on the decline, even with Trump, even with Texas continuing to execute. And that story really begins at the end of the 90s. There's a handful of different cultural forces and legal forces that all come together. George W. Bush is the governor of Texas at the time, and he runs for president. And in running for president, his tenure overseeing the the country's most active you know, death penalty system becomes something that's talked about on the campaign trail. It, it's something that liberals, you know, really dislike him for. There's a very colorful anecdote in the book in which Michael Moore, the, the you know, liberal firebrand, brings a marching band to Huntsville, Texas, outside an execution to kind of shame the governor. And at the time, there's a handful of very controversial executions. There's a woman named Carla Faye Tucker who's executed despite this very clear conversion to Christianity that she presents on Larry King Live and and Christian you know broadcasting networks. There's a case of a man named Gary Graham, who's a black man and is believed by many, uh, including many celebrities, to be innocent, and hundreds of people flock to the streets outside that execution. All of these big, famous, controversial cases lead even more conservative leaders in Texas to not say that they suddenly dislike the death penalty, but that they're a little more skeptical and a little more worried about the system sort of getting it right every time. And so Texas legislature comes back into session in 2001 and passes laws that improve defense and improve the ability of people on death row to get DNA tested in their cases. This is also coming off a big scandal in Illinois, where it's shown that many people on death row are innocent. Uh, There's a real concern that innocent people might have been executed, and this just leads elected officials across the country to question things, to allow laws to get through that improve the rights of people on death row and just slow down executions. And then there's another big part of the fall that I think is one of the least understood and one of the most important. And this is a concept called mitigation. So since the 1970s, defense lawyers have been doing investigations into the lives of the people they represent. But in the early 2000s, you really see the the skill sets of these defense lawyers going to overdrive. The Supreme Court rules in a few cases in ways that really help these defense lawyers get funding from the courts. And this leads to these really robust investigations of their clients' lives that then end up convincing prosecutors and juries to, you know, exhibit mercy in these cases. I tell in the book the story of a man named Juan Quintero, who was convicted in 2008 of murdering a police officer in Houston. Houston at the time was the death penalty epicenter of Texas, which was itself the death penalty epicenter of the country. So Houston was the kind of place where someone who murdered a police officer was on a glide path towards death row. He was also undocumented. This was a time of debates about immigration that really presaged the Trump era. And Quintero just seemed like he was going to be sentenced to death, but his lawyer, a woman named Dana Lynn Reeser, mounted this 
sort of stunning investigation into his life where she sent a team throughout Mexico to collect every school and hospital record and talk to his family members, not just his cousins, but his fourth cousins and his, you know, classmates from when he was in elementary school. I mean, just this unbelievably complex investigation. And what she does with that is convince the jury not to oppose the death penalty, but just to oppose it for Juan Quintero, to say that this man has just enough sort of trouble in his past and capacity for redemption that his life is worth saving. And the Quintero case was a a dramatic example of a defense lawyer winning, but across the country, you see more and more examples of defense lawyers convincing juries to spare the lives of individual defendants. And you also see defense lawyers convince prosecutors that that they might lose a trial and that it's not worth it to even try to, to get a death sentence in these cases. And they negotiate basically a plea deal where the defendant admits to the crime and the prosecutor agrees to a life sentence in prison without parole and the case is resolved that way. And so all these forces are are kind of all coming into play in the early to mid 2000s to drive the number of new death sentences down. One aspect that I didn't know about before reading the book and that helped explain a little bit at least why a lot of these cases were ending up in death penalties was that for a very long time, life without parole was not an option in Texas. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that having that option has made for juries who are asked to consider capital punishment? Absolutely. So in the 1970s, when the death penalty was coming back, juries were asked to decide whether to sentence someone to death And the way most state laws were, including Texas, if they didn't sentence that person to be executed, there was a chance they might get out someday. Um, A life sentence was a technical term of art in the legal system that actually meant something more like 30 years, 40 years, I think maybe even less in some instances. And this meant that that juries felt like they had to sentence people to death if there was if they wanted to ensure there was no chance that they would ever get out because uh, there was a fear that they would commit, you know, more murders. And I actually interviewed a legislator from the 1970s, and I asked him, did you consider life without parole as an option back then? And he said, oh, no, I think that would be worse than the death penalty. That just seemed cruel. And that was shocking to me because fast forward 40 years, and we think of the life without parole sentence as a very harsh sentence, but still a more lenient sentence than the death penalty. But what you've seen is that many states have passed these life without parole sentences, often because prosecutors want an alternative to the death penalty. Defense lawyers are happy to have that as an option to 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 drive down the death penalty. And it works. I mean, it's one major reason why we have fewer death sentences. But at the same time, the number of life without parole sentences since these you know, became an option have really skyrocketed. There's far more life without parole sentences across the country than there were ever death sentences. And, you know, you see that there's almost like a devil's bargain in the decline of the death penalty that we gave up the death penalty in many states, but we almost got something worse depending on how you, you know, sort of morally measure these things. My ears perked up during the Democratic debates for the presidential nomination a couple years ago because all of the candidates were asked if they 
supported the death penalty, and all of them said no. But Elizabeth Warren, who was a you know a very liberal on a number of issues, said part of why she supported the end of the death penalty was she actually thought that life without parole was worse and that that was okay. Um, and there was this kind of punitive strain in her remarks that really surprised me, and it suggested that even as we've turned away from the death penalty, there's sort of a long way to go in terms of Americans turning away from a reaction to crime that says, punish this person. Well, and certainly it's occurred to me, the current efforts that are being made and have been being made for you know more than 20 years to look into cases in which people were sentenced to death that then end up finding either wrongful convictions or actual innocence, it really makes you think, okay, well, attention was paid to these cases because the sentence was death. Mm. How many cases are there out there where there were similar wrongful convictions, there were similar actual innocence cases, but because they ended in life without parole, we will never hear the names of these people and they will be unable to find attorneys or activists to help them. That's right. You know, there's a a man incarcerated in California who started something called the Other Death Penalty Project, and he's trying to make the point that a life sentence is the other death penalty and in some ways is worse because nobody's working on your case. You don't have the right to a lawyer that you have in death penalty cases. In death penalty cases, the legal system has effectively said over and over again, you can't execute somebody who doesn't have a lawyer. And that has meant that many of these people on death row have lawyers, and in some cases, very good lawyers, sometimes even, you know, pro bono lawyers from major uh, white collar firms, white shoe firms, I should say, doing their appeals. And that means that all sorts of issues like problematic forensics, prosecutors hiding evidence, defense lawyers at trial who do such a poor job that, you know, no one would think that this sentence is okay, you know, defense lawyers who fell asleep, all of these things come out in the appeals and they they actually drive criminal justice reform in surprising ways. There is a Texas Forensic Science Commission now that, you know, looks very closely at everything from arson to bite mark evidence. And their, their existence is not solely because of a death penalty case. It, it came out of something else, but it was death penalty cases that sort of brought these forensics to that commission. There's a famous case in Texas of a man named Cameron Todd Willingham who was executed. It's now pretty widely believed that he may have been innocent because of problems in the way they made the decision that it was arson as opposed to just an accidental fire. And arson would not have become the issue at the front of the Texas legislature and political conversations in the state if not for that man being sentenced to death and executed. So it's driven criminal justice debates in very interesting ways. But at the same time, as I said before, the way that the death penalty kind of turns lawyers to be more angry at one another and and sort of more vicious in their work, it also sometimes taints these cases with a kind of culture war dynamic where we're not just talking about is this person innocent or is this person guilty? We're talking about, you know, the case becomes a fight over the death penalty. And the death penalty used to be a kind of culture war issue up there with abortion or gun control. And sometimes cases would get dragged into that culture war fight. And it ultimately didn't really seem like it was helping the prisoner or the prosecutors or the victim's family or really anyone in the legal system when, you know, politicians and celebrities, et cetera, kind of got involved. And when you talk about culture wars, 
if you have a very simplistic dynamic where you're saying Republicans are on one side and Democrats are on the other, and I, I don't think that it's that clear cut, but one of the areas where this would not at all match up with a traditional conservative viewpoint would be fiscal. To actually sentence someone to death and have a, you know, all of the litigation that then follows, it's incredibly expensive. So expensive, you say, that some of these small counties have had to raise taxes to to cover it. Could you talk a little bit about, seems a little cold to say this, but the finances of death, the death penalty? Sure. I mean, I think the finances are important because they have driven, you know, a big part of the death penalty's decline. So the death penalty is, no matter how you cut it, very expensive. Whenever I tell people that I worked on a book about the death penalty, they say, well, isn't it cheaper to kill them than it is to keep them in prison? And I say, well, no, because, you know, it does cost money to, to keep someone in prison, but the appeals that people on death row are entitled to and the lawyers that get paid by the state to handle those appeals are just simply more expensive. There's more of a sense that the system needs to get it right. So at trial, you have more experts. You have, I had a prosecutor tell me, I only get triple certified experts. And I didn't know what he meant by that. And I had to look into it. But there was just the sense that both sides, defense and prosecution, sort of amp up their efforts in investigation and in expertise to try to uh, try these cases and also to work through the appeals. And all of that costs a lot of money. Also, the trials take, you know, weeks longer than a than a, a regular trial. And uh, that sh- basically shuts the courthouse down, especially in a small town. So what you start to see in the early 2000s is small town prosecutors admitting that they can't seek the death penalty because of the cost. And they don't say anything about the morality of it. They say, I think this person probably deserves to die for his crime, but we just can't afford it. There were a couple of really dramatic cases I looked into. There was a very famous case in Jasper, Texas, of a a man named James Byrd who was murdered in a really brutal, horrible way by uh, a group of white supremacists. And that case was, of course, an international news story. Everyone in America heard about it. But it was just this tiny town's responsibility to try these men, and they wanted to seek the death penalty, but they had to raise taxes to seek uh, those death sentences, and local officials compared a death penalty trial to a flood or a tornado that comes through town and wipes out the infrastructure, and you have to build a bunch of new roads and bridges. It was that level of impact on the local economy. Small town district attorneys actually went to the legislature and used that example of cost to push for life without parole sentences so that they'd have a sufficiently harsh alternative to the death penalty. And now even today, you still have examples, many of them, uh, some you never hear about because the the DA just doesn't seek the death penalty in the first place because they know that the cost is going to be too great. So we've talked about the rise and the fall of the death penalty and the fact that the death penalty is being imposed less frequently, and we mentioned you know, the fiscal reasons for that. But let's also get into the statistics when it comes to crime itself. You know, when you looked at the 80s and 90s, there were a lot more crimes being committed or reported and going to trial. And we've really seen a tapering off over the past 20 years of crime rates. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that that also has been the justification for the death penalty being meted out. The idea that, well, if we use the death penalty, it can act as a deterrent. 
Do you think that has any connection to the, the fall in the crime rate? What do studies show? So there are not studies that definitively show that the death penalty deters crime. Plenty of scholars have tried to make that argument and and found some evidence to support it, but then other scholars come along and sort of take a crack at their methods. And I would not say that a scholarly consensus has emerged to prove that the death penalty deters crime. But what we've seen is that the rise and fall of the death penalty in a very loose way has tracked with the rise and fall of violent crime in the U.S. So in the in the era in which the death penalty was returning, the 70s and 80s, there was more and more crime. A lot of people were moving to uh, big cities. Houston's population exploded. And criminologists continue to debate on the reasons why, you know, crime ticked up throughout the 80s and 90s, especially in big cities. And there's not one answer. But the death penalty came along as a political way that elected officials could make it clear that they were doing something about crime. You know, they didn't really, frankly, understand why crime was going up. And the problems of how to solve crime to this day are extremely complex because um, they're institutional and they have to do with our mental health system, our education system, poverty, addiction. You know, you can't solve those problems easily or quickly, but the death penalty often makes it feel like it seems like you can. It, it made it allowed governors, elected prosecutors and judges convey to the public that they were doing something about crime, that they were, you know, sending the worst of the worst to execution, and that this was at least something, you know, dramatic that they could do to, to scare other people from committing crime. And then over the course of the early 2000s, crime went into decline. Again, criminologists, very smart people debate all of the reasons for it. But it took a lot of the general societal fear of crime down with it. And as a result, there was less of a sense that we needed to sentence people to death in order to to get our arms collectively around this problem and combat it. And that really drives, I think, a big part of why uh, the death penalty goes into decline. One more thing I'll say, and this was a theory floated to me that I think a really you know good historian could spend some time on, is that 9-11 played an interesting role. And after 9-11, for most Americans, if you asked them sort of what is the thing causing you kind of physical fear, the answer was increasingly terrorism, whereas before it might have been, you know, violent crime in, in my neighborhood. And I think that there's a, an underappreciated and, and complex role that, that 9-11 played in shifting the focus of sort of societal attention away from sort of street crime and murder and towards, you know, mass acts of terrorism. So I'll look forward to sort of future scholarship on that. Now, so far, we've talked about more overarching and broad ideas and concepts when it relates to the death penalty. And I don't want to leave my listeners with the impression that that is actually what your book is like. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about the way you structured the book is, you know, really embodied by the way you started off, which is the beginning of the book. You meet these employees of a Texas prison during a time when they have not carried out any executions. And all of a sudden they have been told, nope, it's starting up again. You need to, after a, I don't know, is it 20-year break, figure out how precisely to carry out the death penalty and to carry out an execution. You've never done it before, but you need to figure out how to do it. And I imagine you spoke to a number of these people in person, but you're, you're meeting human beings who are charged with actually carrying out the death penalty. Could you talk a little bit about 
how you researched and, and met these people and what it was like from their perspective to have this task given to them. Yes. One of the first interviews I did for the book was with the Reverend Carol Pickett. He was a longtime chaplain for the Texas prison system. And when he first started working for the system in the 1960s, you know, there hadn't been an execution in many years and it was just not on his radar at all. And in 1972, this is how I opened the book. He was told by the warden of the prison that they were going to be carrying one out and that his job was to meet with the condemned man and the warden used the phrase, seduce his emotions. And this was really troubling to, to the Reverend. Reverend Pickett took on the role. He you know, got to know these men and he was really traumatized by the experience. He realized that on the one hand, there was a, a, a value in being the person that would help this man you know, make peace with the world, with his life before he died, and that there was something valuable and good in that. But at the same time, he realized that he was helping the prison system sort of avoid scandal, right? That if somebody you know, fought off the guards and really freaked out um, during the execution, that it would sort of look bad to, to the media and to the public, and, and they wanted to avoid that. So Pickett felt like he was very culpable in this in the system and that really troubled him but he still kept on doing it he sort of felt like the emotional and spiritual pros outweighed the cons as time goes on and i introduce you know i, I start the book with pickett and then he disappears from the scene and the and the emphasis is really on the careers of a few lawyers but pickett comes back in the middle of the book and we meet him again and he's been you know carrying out these executions dozens and dozens of them and Eventually, he's noticing a kind of trauma among all of the corrections officers who work with him and who are tasked with these jobs. And he he sees how the trauma of these executions touches all of them. One man, in fact, has a kind of panic attack and starts crying and goes to Pickett for solace. And Pickett has this metaphor he shares with him of a vase of water and each execution is like a drop and any particular one isn't going to sort of wreck this man emotionally, but eventually the vase overflows, right? And I used Pickett and these executioners as their most vivid example in the book of how the death penalty, even for people who support it, even for people who feel that it's justified and, and play some role in carrying it out, it, it haunts them and it traumatizes them in surprising ways, in ways that don't even become clear to them for, for many years. And the book attempts to give a sort of 360 view of this institution. So I spend some time not only on the executioners, but also on the family members of the of the murder victims, you know, who who witness these trials and executions and have really varied experiences and emotionally when it comes to to the punishment. There's the family members of people who are executed. We spent a lot of time on the lawyers, but a woman who was a prosecutor and later became a judge. And another woman who's a defense lawyer for her whole career. Both of them sort of form the sort of twin core of the book where you continually sort of watch their careers develop, circling around the death penalty and the bigger trends in the death penalty's rise and fall. When it comes to the families of both the people who were sentenced to be executed and the people who their family members died at the hands of the person sex sentenced to be executed... You know, I, I really come back in my mind to the children, uh, what happened, and I'm, I'm not going to remember off the top of my head the names of the man who was executed and, and the man that he killed, but there was a man who was working for a car dealership 
and ended up being shot in the head in what may have been a kidnapping attempt or, or you know, a, a cold-blooded execution. It's really not very clear from the circumstances. And uh, one of the men involved in that ends up uh, facing the death penalty and being executed. And you looked at the children of both these two men and both sides seemed traumatized, but in 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 different ways and in, in intersecting ways. Could you talk a little bit about, did you see commonalities between the families on, on both sides of this issue? I did insofar as, you know, after an execution, you now have two sets of children, if, if the prisoner had kids uh, before they went to, to prison, you know, who have suffered a tremendous loss. And those losses are very different. In the case of the, the murder victim's family, it's very sudden. And in the case of the children of someone executed, it's a a long-term, you know, waiting for, you know, their, their loved one to be executed by the state. But in both cases, you have different forms of grief and also a sense of tremendous isolation because so few of the people they meet in their lives can really understand and identify with what they've been through. In the book, I, uh, I start the book with the case of Charlie Brooks. Charlie Brooks was the first person to be executed by Texas in what we consider the modern era. Uh, this was in 1982. That's the execution that Carol Pickett per- first participated in. And I opened the book with an introduction to all these different people who had some vantage point on that Brooks execution. And I wanted readers to sort of understand it. And then as the rest of the book goes on, and there's, you know, many more cases where you're just, you know, a couple sentences, you're hearing about these, you know, cases, I wanted everyone to kind of remember that every case has all of these people connected to it that are touched in various ways, from the warden and the chaplain and the family members, all the way to the journalists who interview the men on death row. In the case of of Charlie Brooks, you know, he had two sons before he went to prison and his sons did not witness the execution, but they drove to Huntsville and stood nearby in in the building as it happened. And then the man that uh, Charlie Brooks was convicted of killing was named David Gregory, and he had two very young children at the time. And there were in newspaper clippings from the time the names of those children and of his widow. And I spent a lot of time during the research looking for them because they had not appeared in any journalism since then they had just sort of disappeared into the world like people do and eventually I found them and had a really sort of rich fascinating conversation with both the daughter and the son and the the widow and you know the the son had himself been to prison he had briefly joined a white supremacist gang in part because he was so angry at the black men who had killed his father the daughter ran away from home because she had conflict with her her stepfather in the and she became pregnant at a young age and there's all of these moments where she's wondering how might my life have turned out differently if my father had not been murdered and then she logs on to Google and is is researching, um, you know, the, the case in which her father was killed when she was a little kid and finds these oral history interviews with the sons of Charlie Brooks, the sons of the man who was executed. These were actually interviews conducted by the Texas After Violence Project, the organization that I mentioned earlier was my entry point into the this world. And her reactions to, to those interviews were really fascinating. On the one hand, she felt kind of frustrated at the way in which they seemed to be doing all right, even though their father was executed. But at the same time, she also said, you know, I can't fault them for what their father did when they were kids, right? 
And I wanted the book to have a sense of just how unresolved a lot of these issues are and the ways in which our system ultimately sort of fails to bring a long-term sense of peace and healing and justice to families on both sides of these cases. I mean, plenty of people do come away from the cases you know, doing all right in life and having, you know, happy, successful, thriving experiences in life. But over and over and over again, you see just the sense of grief and the sense that surely there's a better way for our society to handle these crimes that that don't have such long term devastation and bureaucracy and and difficulty. And really, one of the selling points for the death penalty is supposed to be that there is a finality that there is, that once this person has been executed, that something will be over. And to be fair, there there do seem to be at least a, f- at least a few families of victims who say, yes, finally, once he was executed, I felt it was over. I felt it was finished. I felt finally we were done. But, you know, as you said, it, it did not seem to me reading the book that death really was the the end to the grieving process or to the effects that this had on on both families. So I did find cases in which the family members felt tremendous healing from watching an execution of the person that killed their loved ones. But I had to keep in mind that that is fairly rare. I mean, even after someone is sentenced to death, the likelihood that they're actually going to be executed is fairly low. And even if they are executed, it comes after sometimes a dozen or 15 or 20 or even 30 years of appeals and the the appeals lead the case to be back in the media again reporters call up these victim family members these these family members might find out that the person who killed their loved one has won their appeal and is going to have a new trial and so they're going to have to go spend weeks in court again and they're just continually traumatized by having the case thrust back into their lives over and over again and many of them describe how difficult that is. And in a certain sense, had the person been sentenced to life without parole, for some victim family members, there's a feeling that that would have actually been better because, you know, sure, it might come back into the media again, but you don't have it sort of institutionally designed to do so. So let's fast forward and talk about where we are today with the death penalty. And just for my listeners, you and I are speaking on February 4th. Yesterday, as I was doing some last-minute prep for this interview, uh, I was on Twitter and saw that the Virginia Senate had voted to end the death penalty in, in their state. That was interesting to me that it is still continuing to be talked about by legislatures. People are looking at it. Should we keep it? Should we get rid of it? I was taken aback by the last few months of the Trump administration when all of a sudden federal executions were started back up. And I feel like I saw a lot more discussion about the death penalty, federal and otherwise, because of that. Could you talk a little bit about what's been going on, say, in the last year to six months, what you see in the future for the death penalty? What are we talking about right now? So there was a moment five years ago when defense lawyers who opposed the death penalty thought there was some chance that the Supreme Court might take the, the issue on again like they did in the 1970s and, and even abolish it this time for good. Then Trump was elected and he's now, you know, um, appointed three people to that court. And there's there's just really no chance that the Supreme Court is going to do much in a big way on the death penalty. They seem pretty willing to let executions proceed. And that was 
demonstrated fairly dramatically when the Trump administration sought to push through it was 13 executions in the end over the course of last year and early this year. And that run of executions, the Supreme Court let them happen. At the same time, it also galvanized opponents to the death penalty. One thing I was tracking in the book research was not just the decline in death sentences and executions and and not just the, the decline in public support for the death penalty, but also the decline in relevance. It's It was seeming like a relic of a bygone era. Sure, there were still executions every year, but it wasn't the kind of thing to make the front page of the New York Times. And Trump thrust the death penalty back onto the national agenda in a big way, and he galvanized opponents of it. And so in the wake of those executions, there's a federal bill that's been brought by Ayanna Presley and Dick Durbin to abolish the federal death penalty. And state legislatures are also, there's momentum towards um, abolishing the punishment. Colorado abolished it uh, last year, and now Virginia seems on the cusp of doing so. Ohio has also passed a big bill that would not abolish it, but limit it so that people with severe mental illnesses cannot be sentenced to death, which seems like something that would have happened a long time ago, but just happened for the first time in Ohio. And so you're seeing a lot more momentum and discussion across the states. And I think a key point is that because the Supreme Court is not going to do, you know, a big swing, as was once thought, the the action is now going to be all in state legislatures and maybe in Congress. And you're going to see a debate about the death penalty's future. What I'm really watching in Virginia is the conversation politically, you know, Virginia is a kind of purple state. It's uh, in the South. There's plenty of Republicans there, some of whom are supporting this abolition bill. And I'm wondering if in Virginia we'll see a template for how opponents of the death penalty can bring conservatives and Republicans, the traditional sort of core of support for the punishment, over to their side. Because that seems like it'll be necessary. It'll be necessary in Congress It may or may not be necessary in Congress, but it will definitely be necessary if any state like Texas or Oklahoma or Louisiana is ever going to consider, you know, big legislation to either do away with or drastically reduce the death penalty. And it would not be the first time I'd point out that my own state, Illinois, the issue of the death penalty and whether or not we could effectively administrate it in a way that was fair and accurate all came to a head under a Republican governor, George Ryan, who I need to point out did also then subsequently go to prison, but we do that fairly frequently with (laughs) Illinois governors. Sure. Um, Yeah, I'm aware. I I mean, I think innocence is an issue that really speaks. So when it comes to conservatives and the death penalty, I'll say that I feel like there's just three big issues that tend to be really compelling. There's the cost of the death penalty, which runs against sort of fiscal responsibility There's innocence issues, the idea that this big government system gets it wrong. You know, the columnist George Will once wrote, capital punishment is a government program, so skepticism is in order. And he was speaking to his fellow conservatives. And then I also think a lot of uh, conservatives come at their politics from a place of religion and spirituality. And you are seeing cases in which there's just such such clarity that the person being executed has kind of been spiritually redeemed, found a relationship with with Christianity and is very authentic and sincere in that. And that I think has really troubled a lot of Christians in America when it comes to support for the death penalty. And the Catholic Church is opposed to the death penalty as well. That's right. That's right. One thing that we have not yet brought up, but I, I don't think any conversation about the death penalty should happen without acknowledging it, is 
both its roots in racism and the disproportionately racist way that it ends up being applied. So let's talk about it. You know, I mentioned earlier that lynching certainly has some similarities with the way that the death penalty has been carried out or has been used as an excuse to have a death penalty because otherwise communities would take it into their own hands and carry out these quote-unquote sentences. When you were researching the book, you know, were there things that you were finding that you were like, oh, people really need to know about this. People need to have their eyes opened to the racist background or the racist results. Absolutely. So I think over the last five to 10 years, there's been a growing awareness, at least among some Americans, that there is a link between the lynchings, the mob executions, this illegal mob executions, primarily of black men in the you know late 19th and early 20th centuries, and the contemporary criminal justice system, death penalty system. Brian Stevenson, you know, the author of the book Just Mercy, a lawyer, has done a lot to advance that public conversation by you know, starting a museum and a, and a memorial in, in Alabama. Texas is behind in that regard. We do not have a big museum or memorial like the one there. And in Texas, there's a tendency to put up a smokescreen and say that lynchings weren't really about race, that they were the product of you know, good old-fashioned cowboy frontier justice. I talk in the book about a, an ad for salsa, for paste salsa that ran in the 90s, in which these uh, cowboys are, are eating salsa. It's a, you know, old Western scene. They're around the wagon. And they find out that the chef used salsa made in New York City. And they say, get a rope. And there's this very flip attitude towards lynching someone because it's seen as just the old way of doing things on the frontier. But what I think people need to understand is that Texas is the Deep South. East Texas is virtually indistinguishable from Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi in that regard. Lynchings were rampant here. As you get into the early 20th century, there's a very complex and interesting and relevant connection between those lynchings and early legal executions. There's a story I mentioned in the book of a man named Dick Garrett, and I feel like this case should just be known um, really more widely. He was um, convicted of murder. There's not a question of, of innocence or guilt, really, but he had a trial that lasted four hours. And while he was in the courtroom, allegedly he could hear the sound of saws and hammers outside the courtroom because they were building a scaffold to hang him because the outcome of the trial was a foregone conclusion. And, you know, a big crowd of people watched this. Many of these executions, they were legal, but, but crowds watched them and they were virtually indistinguishable from lynchings. And then over time, you start to see the state leaders, local leaders become uncomfortable with these big crowds watching people get killed. And they start to put executions behind closed doors. You know, they first start using an electric chair, then eventually you get to lethal injection. And there's one scholar, I found this really fascinating. The scholar David Garland describes some executions as anti-lynchings, that they sort of look, they're supposed to look like the opposite of a lynching because, you know, state leaders, the public are uncomfortable with the idea that we're lynching people and and need to make it look as little like that as possible. But in there, there's a, a recognition that there's a relationship, right? So you get into the 1970s and 1980s, and this is the era in which crime is on the rise. And, you know, leaders like Nixon and Reagan talk about crime in a way that is very racially coded. They do not say all these crimes are being committed by black men, but they imply it. 
you know, many listeners may remember the Willie Horton ad um, in the 80s uh, against the presidential candidate Michael Dukakis, which was all about, you know, associating him with with black criminality. And at the same time, you see the death penalty used disproportionately, in part disproportionately against black defendants, though the effect there is relatively small. But where you really see it, um, and there were some studies that were done on this in the 1980s, you really see it in the race of the victims, that when the victim is white, the likelihood of somebody getting the death penalty is much, much higher. And there's a valuing of sort of white lives in the system. So I think that you know, part of the project of the book, and I think that this is just an ongoing project for all of us, is untangling some of these connections between lynchings and race and the contemporary death penalty and criminal justice system and all of the ways that we, you know, allow disparities in race and tell ourselves that it's not about race. We tell ourselves that this is just justice and, you know, the the legitimate punishment for crimes. But when there's a lot of discretion, when there's a lot of human decision-making in the system, whether it's by prosecutors or juries, inevitably you start to see these troubling racial disparities too. Well, we've been discussing your book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. But I just would love for you to talk a little bit more about the Marshall Project itself. Now, if you are a reader of ABAJournal.com, you may have seen some of the Marshall Project stories reposted uh, with agreement on our site. And just as a, as a journalist and someone interested in legal issues, I've, I've just always been really fascinated by the work that you guys do. Could you talk a little bit about the Marshall Project? Sure. I love to talk about the Marshall Project. Um, <laughs> it's been my, like, you know, my life for, for the last six years. Um, the Marshall Project is a small nonprofit newsroom. Well, I used to say small. We're growing slowly but surely and are a lot bigger than we used to be. And we cover criminal justice. Uh, we, we are funded by a variety of sort of philanthropic grants and also individual small donors. And all of our reporters exclusively cover the justice system. We cover policing. We cover jails, prisons, courts, immigration courts. And we have a lot of data reporters who build databases that allow us to say more sophisticated things about trends in the justice system. And we cover individual cases that sort of speak to these larger trends. It was founded in 2014, and the first editor-in-chief was a, a man named Bill Keller, who had previously been the editor of the New York Times, and he brought this sort of very traditional but very kind of solid approach to just serious journalism that isn't about active, you know, that isn't about trying to tell readers what the solutions to some of these problems are, but the mission statement is to create a sense of urgency around criminal justice to, you know, increase the amount of just attention that readers and politicians and and others are, are putting on, on the justice system to try to unwind some of these issues that are now widely recognized to be problems. The fact that, you know, the United States is one of the biggest prison systems in the world and that those prisons are filled disproportionately with people of color. Also, I should say we're founded in, you know, the era of, you know, the the police killing of Michael Brown and Freddie Gray and Eric Garner. And now, you know, six years later, we're seeing the second wave of attention on those issues with the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. We're kind of seeing the way that our reporting is starting to trickle out into policy conversations, into other reporting and, and local newspapers around the country. Uh, so I'm very proud of the work that we do. And I, you know, work on long investigative stories. I specialize in more sort of magazine feature style stories. And then I also continually, along with a colleague named Carrie Blakinger, cover uh, death penalty issues. 
And one of the things that I've enjoyed following through the website, or I don't know if enjoyed is the right term, but you cover inmate issues very well. And during the pandemic era, looking at what is happening in prisons with COVID-19 infections, um, or even just how prisons are dealing with the added stresses of the pandemic. And it's, it's chilling in many instances, but hopefully is opening some eyes to uh, protections that need to be instituted. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, you know, prisons have been our kind of bread and butter in terms of coverage because we recognize that they're hard to cover. The U.S. prison system is the size of a city and, you know, there's hundreds of prisons around the country, different issues in all of them. So what we try to do is do investigative stories, you know, maybe about a prison that is failing in its in its efforts to to stem COVID-19 or isn't making any efforts to, to stem the, the virus. And then our hope is that our coverage inspires other outlets around the country, local outlets, to do their own investigative work on the prisons in their own communities nearby and to to just sort of increase the level of attention that these institutions get. I'll also say that I have a particular interest and, and focus on jails, which are there's a distinction to be made. Prisons are where people go after they've been convicted of a crime. Jails are primarily where people wait for trial. So they're much more transient. There's one in every community, and they have often been vectors for the coronavirus, but also vectors for all kinds of other problems like addiction, trauma, violence, etc. And there's one in everyone's backyard. And so I think a lot of this reporting for me is just trying to encourage readers like mass incarceration is not out there. It's in your town, too. And it's worth paying attention to who your sheriff is, who your district attorney is. These people are elected. You can vote in these elections. And if you care about the issue... In addition to writing to people in Congress and attending protests, there's a lot you can do at the local level to affect change. And if people wanted to find out more about The Marshall Project, what's that URL? It's www.themarshallproject.org. And then finally, to close us out, I would love for you to read a passage from the book. I like to do this just like give listeners kind of a feel for the language. Sure. So this is the opening of chapter nine, the opening of the second half of the book, which is called Fall, to describe the fall of the death penalty. The passage references a few cases that have come up earlier in the book. So if you don't recognize a name, that means that it's been introduced and I'm kind of recapping a little bit here, but it should give you a sort of flavor for the the feel of the book. A murder is physical and intimate. Someone pulls a trigger or thrusts a knife or wraps a hand around a neck. Police work is physical and intimate too. Detectives take photographs, label pieces of evidence, question suspects and witnesses, and then shackle someone's wrists. The police might devise a theory about what happened, but it's when the lawyers arrive that words and ideas take over, as prosecutors and defenders place the evidence in service of a narrative. When the question is life or death, the lawyers try to establish not only what people did, but also who they are, and they speak of good and evil. After the death sentence is handed down and the case climbs through the appeals courts, it grows increasingly cerebral. A person without a law degree who would have understood most of the plain-speaking witnesses in the trial transcript is now confronted with dense jargon and a great deal of Latin. At the top of the system, the Supreme Court works out constitutional interpretations that apply to thousands of cases, and abstraction prevails. When the court was listening to arguments in 1976 over whether the Texas death penalty law was constitutional, and the state's attorney general told the justices the story of how Jerry Jurek had strangled his victim, Wendy Adams, Justice Lewis Powell had bristled at the intrusion. He and his colleagues were supposed to decide whether the Texas death penalty law comported with the Constitution. The grisly details of one murder could only be a distraction. 
But when a case has finally been rejected by the highest court, it returns for a moment to the intimacy with which it began. The governor, or in a federal case the president, decides whether to grant clemency, holding singular and total power over a person's life. Defense lawyers shift their arguments from the legal to the personal. Danilin Reeser submitted her client Carl Kelly's artwork and interviewed his family to demonstrate his struggles and his moments of kindness. If journalists cover the case, the public gets to know the murderer again, often for the first time since the trial, and if there are doubts about his guilt, about whether the crime was really the worst of the worst, about redemption, they now appear, turning the question of life or death from a legal fight to a political one. If celebrities or activists are going to get involved, this is their cue. If the final push for clemency fails, and it usually does, the center of action shifts suddenly from the highest realms of politics, from the governor's office on the second floor of the Capitol building in Austin, 150 miles east, to a room at the Walls Unit in Huntsville, where a group of men are given a task as intimate as the original killing, another killing. They strap the body of a man, or occasionally a woman, to a gurney, insert a needle into their arm, and then send chemicals through the needle and wait for their heart to stop. Then they unstrap the body and lift it into a casket and place the casket in a car that will leave the prison grounds. Beginning with Charlie Brooks's execution in 1982, they performed these tasks four times a year, on average, in the 1980s. In the 1990s, they carried out one execution per month. In 2000, the year that executions peaked in Texas, they executed 40 people, including, in a few instances, three men in a single week. Well, thank you so much, Maurice Shema, for joining us on the Modern Law Library. Again, the name of your book, Let the Lord Sort Them, The Rise and Fall of the Death Penalty. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please reach out and rate and review and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service. I really enjoyed hearing from a couple of you about some of the books that you're reading. And if you want to tell me about either a book that you think should be featured on the show or just one that you want me to see and enjoy. You can do that by reaching out to books at abajournal.com.